Welcome to the Where Two or Three podcast, Christian thinkers finding their place at the table of communication scholarship. Before we begin, the views and discussions of this podcast do not necessarily reflect agreement with the views of Martin Luther College, which is my institution. And as always, we'll begin with prayer. The eyes of all look to you, O Lord, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hands and satisfy the desires of every living thing. Amen. Thank you. We thought we would begin this second look at indirect communication. We'll get right to a, a scriptural narrative. And um, just the one prefacing remark is that uh, John and I have both had a chance to, to, to study some rhetoric or rhetorical analysis of texts. And one thing that we found kind of intriguing is the idea of rhetorical study, that when some kind of text or artifact of some kind, when it moves you, when it does something to you that you can't fully explain why, that means that your, your engagement is somewhat superficial. And so rhetorical study is kind of the desire to move past that and understand how something is operating on you is kind of the idea. And so I've thought about that often with, with texts that have moved me across my whole whole life, and I've never been able to totally say why. I'm not sure I have the answer to this one either, but uh, that's uh, it's always done something to me. So yeah. this is uh, the story. Did you have something to say? No, I, I was <laughs> just agreeing because yeah. the... We, we've talked about this specific story that you're about to to read, and it's just, it floors me, especially when I've had, like, time to think, like, to distance myself from it again, and then it comes back. It's just, what makes this such a powerful thing? Yeah, so let's, yeah, let's move get, to that let's get right into line it. or two. Um, so the story is, or the context is, John the Baptist is in prison, about to lose his life for being a truth teller and a true prophet, which is not easy, and uh, sends his dying question, I suppose you could say, to Jesus. So, uh, And there's some mystery about what's really happening. We can get into that if you like, John. But anyway, we're in, we're in Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 18. John's disciples told him about all of these things, which is the things that Christ had been doing most recently raising a widow's son, John's disciples told him. So calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Which, by the way, is fascinating. This is the last recorded thing John said. If you're making up a gospel, do you have John the Baptist's last recorded words be, are you the one or should we expect someone else? So verse 20, when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. And I, I held it together, John, but that <laughs> it wanted to do that thing to me, that yeah. the blind receive sight. Just tell John the lame walk and so on. 
So John's messengers leave, and after they left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John, and that's where he says, I tell you, there's never been a prophet born of women who is greater than John. And then he says, and yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John, which is a whole other thing. It must be John is a prophet who's revealing the things of God to people, and yet John hasn't seen the things the smallest Sunday school child today yeah. has seen in, in Christ. And so what is the greatness that he's talking about? Anyway, you want to try first, John? What is it about that? Yeah, story? so the first thing that, as I'm like dissecting it, is that he answers a different question when in his response. Mm-hmm. So John asks, like, are you the one? And it's almost like there's dialogue that happens in between. I think there's a similar thing at the burning bush where Moses would ask a question and then God would answer the question that Moses should have asked mm-hmm. at that time instead. And it's almost as if there's a, a part where he responds, yes. And then John's next question could be, what does he do? Like, what is he doing? <laughs> and that's what happened. Or, or what has he done? That's, I don't know. I don't, it just, it seems like there's like a, there's an understanding that there's a gap in the dialogue. Which is but, really, Which makes it powerful that there's a, I, I still am exploring it, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, that's true of a lot of conversation. Yeah, we we understand uh, uh, what's a, like a common example. Um, it just didn't like passing dialogue. It'll happen sometimes where someone asks a question and like, are you f- free at seven tonight or something? And someone could be like, I'm at a baseball game or something. It, you know, there is like there's lines that you skip, but it's understood that those are. Yeah, is understood. phone rings? Is Mark there? Just a minute. Yeah, that's not the answer to that question. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't think of one on the spot, but yeah, yeah that's. So a, you were thinking of Moses saying, "Who am I that I should lead these people?" And the Lord answers, "I'll be with you." Mm-hmm. You should have been asking the question, oh, yeah. "Who am I, and what yeah. will I do for you, or whatever." So, um, yeah, okay. So the topic today is, uh, again, part two, part two of indirect communication. And the issue here is why Jesus doesn't answer John directly would be the thing. Yeah. Here's a man about to die in his service, in his name, asking, are you the one or not? You could, you might have said, well, yes. <laughs> yeah. But even then, there's this holding back of the direct answer as if to say, John, work it out. Work it out. You know Isaiah. You know the prophet. You know what he said. Mm-hmm. Work, work this out, you know. And something, just something about that being Jesus' will for John to find the answer in the scriptures just as much as in the report. Yeah. Now that, I mean, <clears throat> people, I think, debate the matter, is this really John's question? Or is it even another layer of indirectness as he sends his disciples to ask the question? They need to be asking. They need to hear um, with their own ears from yeah. Jesus to transfer their loyalty as John desires to become less and let Christ become more. So that remains possible. I've kind of thought, if it were John's actual question, here he is in prison for doing everything that and saying everything he'd been given to say, would it bother me that John himself needed that assurance yeah. to hear directly from Jesus? But, but Jesus' answer... You know, I don't know why I connect to that. I guess I haven't explained it fully. I think it's indirect. I, 
the words are part of a choir song we sang in high school. Yeah. And maybe there's part of that too going oh, on. Oh, and I think we'll be talking about that later is how art can exactly. make things like that deeper. I think we mentioned that in the previous episode mm-hmm. as well, where a retelling in a new form mm-hmm. can move you. Right. So that's this episode. It's kind of the so what question. If what we're saying is true, what are the implications for a series of things like art or yeah. education or preaching or witnessing or whatever it might be? What are the takeaways or what are the fresh questions that might come? Yeah. And I wanted to mention, I it's such a difficult concept to explain in direct communication. I came across like a nine-page article on the internet that I think does actually a pretty good job of explaining indirect communication and then taking it to these kinds of practical questions. So I Google it. It comes right up. So if, we, if a listener wants to Google this title, quote, want people to hear your message, question mark, let them overhear it. That's the name of the article. Um, let me read a few lines, actually, to give you a flavor of it, to, to uh, again, how this is going to take us to how the concept can inform certain decisions we might be facing. So here we go, just a little bit. Have you ever attended a wedding where, though you weren't the one exchanging vows with your beloved, you still felt your own commitment to your wife renewed? And I often think about that in a wedding service, that I don't need to address husbands and wives in a real overt way to to know that they are being drawn into the action in a profound way. I was at a wedding last night, and it's just so, it's unavoidable. I get that with baptism sometimes. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. Certainly. You are you are not a participant, but mm-hmm. yet you are, you know. Yeah. Have you ever been reading a book and come upon an insight that was so profound your jaw literally dropped and you spent the next couple minutes staring off in the distance, absorbing its significance? So the indirectness of text because you know, reading a book gives you that same kind of space to Pause your reading at your own pace and reflect. And now, uh, what do I, th- what do I think of this? What do I make of this? Where am I um, in this text? Have you ever been at a church service where the pastor was speaking to the congregations unconverted, and while you already believe, you felt your heart greatly stirred? Have you ever watched a play and left the theater with a head full of questions, not only about the plot but about its intersection with your own life? Have you ever had a friend share an experience? That though they didn't know it at the time, helped you figure out what decision to make with an issue you were personally struggling with. In all these situations, you were privy to a message or an experience that wasn't explicitly directed to you. You overheard it, and that made it all the more powerful. And that made not only cue the practical set of questions, but also bring to mind some of what we talked about last time. John, so there it is. Want people to hear your message? Question mark. Let them overhear it. it the article... <clears throat> We'll probably raise the same kind of red flag issues we've been raising with this uh, theory of communication, so we're not blanketly endorsing it, but it's a nice summary. Yeah. It's good to, I mean, as always, read with a grain of salt and then uh, glean what it, what you can from it. Mm-hmm. I, uh, For the record, I haven't I haven't read the full article. I'm looking forward mm-hmm. to, to doing that. I did Google it, and it came up right away. Right so, away. Um, That's how tech-savvy I am. I yeah. Yeah. I checked and it came up. So what a world we live in, where you can just look up things right away. Yep. So we've been a little bit nervous, John and I. Are the things that we are repeating that have already been said since we're not um, recording these sessions? Yeah, I'm not taking notes on what proximity. we've talked about so, before. But just a little bit of a lead-in. I apologize if any of this has already come up, but the issue of 
how do we assess what's happening in our culture that would lend any kind of urgency to to these questions? You know, how to communicate when people are resistant, when they think they already know that whole set of issues. And so well, it's one scholar a long time ago who called our culture a Christ-haunted culture, and what she meant was culture has enough of a dim awareness of what the Christian truth is that it almost inoculates them to what the truth actually is. They think they already know. It's that kind of issue. It's the issue of the polls asking what does the person on the street or how do the how does the person on the street react to the word evangelical? And there's just some data out there that maybe we all feel this and already sense it, but that the 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 answers are alarming. The those who have any kind of positive expectation of the church, that, that number's kind of falling off a cliff. The patterns of resistance are just all the more automatic to, to be a Christian. The, I mean, the opposition is very, it's always been there, it's always been real, but it's so out of the closet, sort of, so to speak. It's so in our face today that maybe, again, some urgency to the question of who is reaching people and how, which makes you think about art, for example. Yeah. I... Do we, do we want to talk about the art part of it then? Because cool. I think that's the yeah. that's like one of the things that I, I, I try to think about is like what in in terms of what makes something powerful is that the the things that I experience in in art that are powerful to me do make me stop and contemplate. Mm-hmm. It's it's hard to pass them up. It's hard to just read that and be done or to look at that painting or watch that movie or read that book and just, Oh, that's it. Okay. I finished the story and then I'm done. The ones that are good are the ones that leave me with something like you have to put this together now. Like mm-hmm. now's the part where you do the work of the story mm-hmm. and, and, and actually make it happen. Uh, the one that I think we mentioned before, uh, right before we, we hit record was the, the slain lamb laying down on its side and it's just like a top-down view of this uh slain mm-hmm. lamb and the blood of the like pouring from the neck uh moves into the shape of the like the map of the world and like i can't you can't like take your eyes off of it for a second but you have to like sit and contemplate what that like there's a lot of subtlety and things that you can't move mm-hmm. like past I think it's an example of, it's not like it's that difficult to work out what the artist is saying, but there still is a moment of sort of drawing a breath and Mm -hmm. saying, oh, I recognize that. Yeah. And it's that dynamic we mentioned or talked about last time quite a bit of, I I know what the gospel is. It just brings brings it to me in a a way that's fresh and involves me differently Mm -hmm. in it. So it's not new information. We, We know Christ died for the world. It just catches you yeah the same with the things that 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 christ says in his reply to to john the baptist we know all of those things we've all read scripture before but it still moves you when that's the response the total poignancy and pathos of that of their relationship um is part of i think the, the moving thing but uh even that doesn't totally capture it i don't think so i like what you said before i mean it's I've kind of repeated someone else saying that artists should make create conversation. Mm-hmm. It just shouldn't be. Yeah. Oh, isn't that nice? You know that there's something more provocative. Yeah, it it has it. a life outside of the experience of the thing too. Right. So you leave the theater 
still in the world and still asking those quite like the questions that might come up or you finish the book and you, you know, go on a walk and then it's not satisfied. You're not, you have to put it back together. Exactly. It haunts you. And it's, it's, it, it's almost like it transports you a little bit. Mm -hmm. It takes you somewhere. Yeah. In a way. Right. Again, the, the fresh hearing the fresh engagement with something you know. My, one of my, my, my advisor in, in uh, my program just despised art that was, that's tame and tepid and nice, you know. To, yeah. That... I remember I, I was given an example. We were in Oxford and talking about C.S. Lewis, right? And it was, uh, we were talking about the screw tape letters. Yeah, as one does, right? Yeah, as yeah. one does. Yeah. And, uh, I remember my. I was giving a little presentation. And my example from Screw Tape was, you know, obviously the thing is said is a master demon is giving advice to an under demon or whatever, and that the language is all very, very polite on the surface, but it's really biting and you know very authoritarian and stuff. But the Screw Tape re- retains that sort of polish and politeness, except one moment he loses it, and. This really hits me kind of personally because he loses it when the subject that the under demon is trying to corrupt is a man who's just on the verge of Christianity and he's been kind of drawn into the orbit of a young Christian girl. And when when that comes up, um, Screwtape just loses it. He talks to her, talks about her as the whore and in just this really vulgar, vile language and all the gloves are off and the mask is off and... So much so that he turns back into a grub or something. He loses mm-hmm. total control. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously it's kind of it's very creative fiction, right? This is mm-hmm. C.S. Lewis communicating the faith indirectly. I mean, explicitly communicating indirectly. But I remember my my advisor really responding to that, like that. That's art that isn't tame. You know, that's art that really mm-hmm. makes you become aware of something truly evil and grotesque, which is our yeah. enemy, the devil, and and my goodness, that communicates something. Yeah, that's else, Flannery O'Connor. That's yeah, the right, the power of the grotesque and making evil something you can spot and see for what it is, mm-hmm. and then interspersing into that some moment of grace. What was that uh, Stephen King story? You were to the Green Mile. Was that? Oh it? yeah, that was. What was curious about that was Stephen King. From what I've read of him, is no friend of Christianity. So here's this novel and movie with Tom Hanks. The Green Mile, which has this main character, is this big mountain of a guy, a um, uh, black man, huge sympathetic character. He's always got tears in his eyes. He is hated and wrongly imprisoned for having done terrible things to children, which he didn't. But so here's this innocent character dealt with as the, the criminal of the world, and yet he's a character who um, is able to take on the suffering and pain of other people into himself. He literally inhales the the disease and pain of other people. He looks at a woman wasting away and looks into her and says, I can see it, meaning whatever this dread, evil corruption is, and he can draw it into himself and, and suffers over it. And So it, what we talked about was, boy, it's, just, it's such a redemptive story from someone that doesn't have any desire to put a Christ figure on display like that character perhaps does. Yeah. It begs some interesting questions about, you know, if that's the kind of story that 
someone who is uh, hostile towards Christianity tells, how much of that is like a, maybe there's something to be said about our human nature seeks out sort of redemptive stories. There's Maybe there's something there where we yearn for that kind of fulfillment that we don't get anywhere but Christ. Sure, but, but yeah. The yearning for <clears throat> a love like that, you know, some kind of art puts on display, not having perhaps Christ in mind, but puts on display something that is so radically sacrificial. And um, there's something about that that kind of archetypal story that yeah. I don't know what to make of it totally. The fact that those yeah, stories exist and we know no one by themselves is going to imagine or dream up the gospel or anything like it. That gospel will always be, as I say, that collision with human reason. We would never discover it on our own. It has to be revealed to us and yet there is something going on in the human heart that that uh, is, well, as Paul talked about at Athens, at Mars Hill, that God has arranged things in such a way that men would seek him even though they never will find him on their own but yeah there's something to be said for that so i mean that cues the example again something i've said in other contexts but just my quick story of my advisor again who talk about a culture that was utterly and absolutely resistant to a christian message it was a portion of egypt where you're not going to mention his name and you know come home basically so he's asking the question, how do you communicate Christ when the resistance is that is to that degree, the, um, when the patterns are to that degree set? And So what he does, uh, to me quite a moving thing, is he gather, gathers a bunch of people from that culture who are Christian, and they put on a, a movie, and the plot of the movie is this girl gets caught up in the sex trade, and she gives herself over to it to survive, I suppose, and... When she's all used and spent up, she contemplates going back home. But in that culture, there's no going home. You're dead to them, and they're dead to you. And the way the movie is plotted out is taken directly from the Gospel of Luke 15, how the daughter goes home and is embraced by her family and her father, which wouldn't happen in that culture. It's a very countercultural story, and it's yeah. called The Prodigal Daughter. And I still debate with myself. I mean, it's a moving thing to think about, the... I debate within myself, what good does this do if there isn't an explicit, explicit Christian message on top of it to actually say, here's what it means. But my advisor would say it's in a place where you can't do that. You literally can't do that. Can it at least in some way offer people something radically redemptive, something uniquely Christian that doesn't yet have that name on it? And then, God willing, someday the scandal does come, that the message does come. And in some way, this seeing that movie is part of that people learning to respond in an appropriate way to the love yeah. of God, right? So it's just an intriguing possibility. That yeah, that there's a if we're talking about leaving the leaving the barriers down if we can, leaving the resistance, leaving those walls down if there's any way we can in communicating. Yeah. Christ, then we could explore that question: What other ways are there to get something radically, uniquely? redemptive and Christian into the minds of people before the scandal, which is sort of like Jesus, maybe Christ saying, yeah, doing a miracle or having the disciples confess him and saying, don't tell anybody. Maybe it's 
something about him wanting to have a lot of Nicodemuses who mm-hmm. had had time to just hear him and become attached and become disturbed before the moment comes. I.e., the Christ, the Son of God, and he says, "I am." So that's a little bit of you know speculative. But yeah. What are other ways, John? I guess is what I'm, we're kind of asking. What are other ways that we communicate something? that is truly Christian, that doesn't immediately arouse the usual resistance. Yeah, that's the... It's interesting to interface with our our culture in that way because it implies that it's intentional, right? When when you tell a story like that with Mm -hmm. a theme in it, it's... It has purpose behind it, and I think that that adds to the... Well, one to the quality of the story, but I don't know. It's I still wrestle with it. The question, mm-hmm. like, how do you how do you do that in a way that's effective? Because it's a very tricky thing to do, to do. Mm-hmm. How do you tell a, a a radical story like that and then have it accomplish what you set it out mm-hmm. to do? And maybe it could be as you know, not to overthink it. It's just a, a witness that that does the arousing of the question first and then just the mm-hmm. witness is delayed enough to yeah to see if we have awakened that urgency and that need mm-hmm. to know um, in the person and you know the, the thing about indirect I, I I thought of it now I want to make sure it gets said is that well the question of when do you when do you want to be indirect and when do you want to be direct and the the whole idea would be if someone doesn't have what we're calling the information if someone doesn't really know um, then typically we're going to provide the information very directly, unambiguously. Yeah. If someone is already hungry for it, someone is feeling, I mean, in law gospel terms, is feeling the weight of their sin and the need for mercy, we're not going to be clever in how we respond to that. Yeah. We'll hold nothing back. This is all about people that think they know and, and are dismissive. It's That's what it's about. Yeah, it's and that's our that's like it. our culture today. That's, Wait, the, that's the... That's the theory anyway. Mm-hmm. Sure. What, the... The term you said earlier, it escapes my mind now, but uh, Christ, Christ haunted, that's what it was. Right. So that would be a situation where you could use indirect right. in a very effective way. Right. You think that's what it is to be a Christian. Well, this is what it is until the yeah. whatever. The but you don't know it's about Christianity until afterwards. Right. So you, you set up a story that would seem like a normal piece of you know entertainment. And then at the end, you you possibly lay the groundwork for like, well, this could this is what Christianity really is, and and I think the stories that are really well done don't even do that. They leave you asking the question, exactly. right? Like right. they don't say, they don't like Jesus with the parable of the sower. They don't explain afterwards. You have to put those pieces together yourself. Right. I think so too. So as far as and, and that's Art what, in our culture, yeah. that, that, that the objectives are maybe modest. We're not trying to beat someone over the head with a Christian message. It's yeah. The objectives of indirect communication often are somewhat less than that. I want to awaken the, well, I've said it many times now, mm-hmm. awaken the urgency of this thing that you've dismissed and just don't allow yourself to think about. And it's a it's such a tricky thing to do because, it is well, if we're talking about making art, or narrative that can achieve a purpose like that. We're really reverse engineering an experience that we want someone to have. 
So it's a weird way to, to approach it. How much information do you leave in? How much do you exclude? How much do you tell? Mm-hmm. And at the end, I think that's maybe what you could, one of the things you can do to separate, you know, good stories from less good stories is how much information is there that doesn't need to be. Because if you are intentionally trying to explore a theme with the audience and maybe teach them a lesson or give them a virtue to ponder or something like that, the, the stories that are good aren't the ones that say, you know, being patient is a good thing or letting money take control of your life has negative consequences. Those, those are the, the ones that are mediocre mm-hmm. to me. And that's maybe the, like the qualm that your professor had. Yeah, I with, think so. With, with well, just it's, very... Sure, it's like the trailer of some new Christian movie. Yeah. The trailer gives the whole movie. I haven't seen, what right. are the, God Isn't Dead or something. Right, right, right. Yeah, I've, it just... Why should I watch this movie? You already told what me person, everything going to happen in it. It's like almost... I see the same thing in like uh, political, like magazine or article, like online articles. Like, what? Who are you convincing? Like, who are you? If the the audience is only people that already agree with what you're saying, what are you actually accomplishing by by doing this? Right. There's nothing radical there. So maybe there's a telling people what they want to hear, but it's just it. It's very, it's frustrating for me to say that. <laughs> I, th- I think I came across this very recently. Uh, one of our writers called it a soft apologetic, which just means, you know, some people maybe are reached by something more rigorous in terms of argument and evidence that's trying to say, you know, pay attention to Christ. We're, there's reasons to, to look and in, in, yeah. in hear. But a soft apologetic would be for those who who think more, imaginatively and more emotionally about things that maybe that's the person who putting this in the form of music or art even something more explicitly Christian but still is taking a different form that you know who knows I one of the major apologetic scholars is Habermas who does great work on the resurrection of Jesus you know Mm -hmm. reasons to to take that really seriously that just the historical account and so on I won't get into that fully now but um his more recent research, I'm told, is that he's asking the question now, why do people, what kind of account do they give of not being Christian? And what he's found out very recently is something like 10% will give a reason that is intellectual, which kind of tells me maybe we don't put all of our eggs in the basket of yeah. that kind of apologetics. Maybe 10% of people will mention something that's more about will which is how they want to live their life. They don't want to live in a certain way or give up certain things they think are blessing them. And maybe the social part is part of that, people that just don't want to hang with Christians. But that leaves 80% for whom the whole issue, at least by their self-reporting, is called it personal. 80% is pain. 80% is people who just find life so hard and so miserably difficult and dreadful that that's the whole source. So... 
to deal with that person in terms of we're going to throw lots of words and information, I think that kind of falsifies. Yeah, it's a misreading of the problem. I, I, yeah, potentially. Like it's an infra- information problem when the information is obviously essential. We're talking about Christ being the Son of God who died in our place, my goodness, and rose as a fact of history. The information is priceless. If you don't have that, you got to have that. But it just makes you think, what are the sort of more human ways to communicate to the heart and imagination of this person, not merely to their intellect? So just, again, carving out what is that place for art and for music that is hopefully not going to be so direct as to immediately occupy a person's mind with how how to how to hold this truth at arm's length. Mm-hmm. You know, we've already said that. But uh, I so, think, I don't know. I, I'm imagining like, because this is something that I'm looking to do in the, in the future, perhaps near future, is to, to do things like that. That's why I'm pursuing like the career that I'm pursuing mm-hmm. now. But I think one of the goals that I have, would, would have for, for any kind of project like that is if I can leave someone in a space where they're at least asking the question on their own. Mm-hmm. I think that's the work has begun at that point. And I, I don't know what else I would want from that because I'm not the Holy Spirit. I can't bring someone to faith. But if I can perhaps show them that there is a road there. Yeah. That, that like, what else could I what else could I really do? You know, there's, if there, if the questions are being asked, that means the defenses are down and that's the, that's the main, that's been the main problem so far is that there's resistance to this. Mm -hmm. So if those resistances are slowly whittled away from behind, that is the ideal situation. You somehow communicate in a way that makes a person want to know. And it's a, it's a difficult like the urge to to be direct about it is very strong. Right. Cuz it's like this is what I want to say. This is what I want you to this is what I want to you to know. I'm like I'm really dying for you to know this right now. This is like if I could have anything, it would be that this is it. But mm-hmm. then what is like what does Christ say when he's asked why why parables? Because yeah. they won't know. <laughs> they, <laughs> and that fulfills a prophecy. I will open my mouth in parables and other things hidden from the creation of the world. I don't quite have that right. But, you yeah. know, this this kind of triggers a red flag for me, though, I'll be honest, I, as I try to think this through carefully. What I don't want us to do is is sort of overthink. You know, I, I you could almost make the counter case if we all just learn to be transparently Christian. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, if... The weapons we have in our hands are law and gospel, and that's what law is doing. It's arousing, mm-hmm. it's arousing an urgent need, as a person is confronted by themselves, and then the gospel. Once once you have that, certainly for relationships like friendships you have, mm-hmm. I can think of. It it's more it's easier for me to think about using indirect communication as a strategy when it applies to art, but in real life. It gets very, it's almost manipulative. 
It could it be. Can, it can yeah. be, and it could be perceived as such very easily, I think. Mm-hmm. In which case, like, being transparent and living a Christian life is perhaps the best. Maybe that's an indirect way right. of doing it, but, but just being a Christian, doing the things that Christians do, is a very good witness to those who, sure. who might not. It's called telling, not showing, you know, which is the Apostle Paul praying that God would open doors for the gospel, and then when they do, when they do, that he would have the courage to walk through. And so, yeah, which we say, I, I can imagine being on an airplane, let's say, John and, and me and my Christian friend are by the window in the aisle, in the middle seat, and then the aisle is some stranger. Like, I could imagine, would it be manipulative for me and my Christian friend to just have an open conversation about Jesus just loud enough to be heard by the person beside us? Because even yeah. that you're saying, I want them to, I, I know what happens too often when I directly confront. How about having them overhear it? What do you think about yeah, that? Yeah, so... Just not not hiding yeah. Not hiding or whispering this conversation, mm-hmm. but going ahead and letting people over here, but again, not in any position to contradict because we're not talking to them, right? Yeah, that's I'm just thinking that's interesting. That's a very interesting. What uh, are the forms this could take? You know. Yeah, I don't know. Like, you, it's hard to define again. Like, what what def, what characterizes manipulation versus strategic rhetoric? Right. You know, they're... So I think that... Uh, and it, is it intentions that, that determines this? Because you could say, I don't know, you know the cliche about good intentions. So they're, I don't know. I don't know what the... <laughs> I, well, think it, I think it differs case to case too, because some people might overhear that and, you know, maybe there's a silent majority where the person in the aisle says, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian too, you know? and Or or maybe they're, they overhear it and are still inoculated to the idea of Christianity as being something that they'd be open to. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, one, one takeaway for me from thinking about all of this that has really actually helped me quite a bit in my own personal life as a witness is just that it's, it's so non-coercive, which we as Lutherans know to be. We're not trying to close any deal, right? And so this the notion of offering another person a word of Christ, offering them that word, and then leaving them alone mm-hmm. with it. You know, even that is sort of has it has a, the ethic of indirect in it. And leave you with the word of Christ and leave you alone and trust the two of you can work this out together. Yeah. I don't have to be there, you know, just... Sort yeah. of pressing. I'm not here. Pressing you. Yeah, that's not my business. I, yeah. So that, what makes indirect is it, it's really clear about the thing I can do in communication, what I can't do, and what I cannot do for you is appropriate. Appropriate for you, I can't believe for you, and Lutherans are more clear about that than anybody else. And so, so again, it's back to a confident use of the Word of God, knowing what our place is, but we're not the ones who are going to give birth to that truth. And for sure, only the Spirit can do that. I've I've noticed a similar thing in the, I've, especially when I was working with uh, the same people back when I was at the th- uh, theater, I I, I noticed this. Um, for the people that were in my life that that weren't Christian that I would talk about Christianity with, 
I would oftentimes find that the things that they didn't like about Christianity were also things that I had qualms about too, whether it be from another denomination or an erroneous belief or something that just wasn't true, uh, not scriptural. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm really sorry that that happened to you. Uh, that's actually not what scripture says. And then to say, that gives you the doorway to, to say, you know what, Christianity is really about what, what God's done for you. That's it. You, it's done, it's paid for. And then, and then that's like, I don't, I'm not expecting anything from you mm-hmm. after that point. I, you don't, you don't need to do anything else. It's all like, it's all taken care of. And it's like a way, it's a, that's, that's the end of my contribution at that point. Mm-hmm. You can just take a step back and let them, let that simmer. Right. And that's, and right. maybe the conversation goes somewhere else after that, but still it, it, it leaves, it often gives pause at that moment in the conversation mm-hmm. where you, you need nothing else. You have like, we're not, there's nothing else that you have to, to do. And that is the other side of this, that in our culture, we probably cannot take for granted anymore what people understand or don't. So mm-hmm. again, for the most part, the, this whole question of how to communicate comes after it's become clear that someone has all that information, so to speak, and yeah. just it doesn't. It's never a default. To them. Yeah, it's never a default strategy for a new situation. Right. It's always taking into account the goings on, mm-hmm. and then determining that this might be an effective way mm-hmm. to approach it. I'm at, do you have examples of using indirect communication strategies in uh should I say real life you in, know, I, in interactions cuz I'm finding that sometimes it happens spontaneously or like accidentally for me. Me where too. I see an opportunity and it just in the moment, it just happens, but it's always very much generated by the situation that's coming up in front of me and never really a pre-thought like, I'm going to come and talk to this person about this thing and then I'm going to say this and then I'm going to say this and then I'm going to be like, voila, there it is. <laughs> it, that's never how it is. It, of, it often is uh, very much in the deep in a conversation there's a small window where I can be, be like, it's often in the form of like a question. We can just say, you know, have you ever thought about this? And then that gives them pause to like take a distance and actually think about something. Right. Or where I could say something to someone in the presence of someone who I'm actually wanting to talk to. And they can overhear it per se. But And those are very short things and not, really premeditated per se. Right. So that's good, John. I mean the the range of what counts as indirect is so broad. So taking your cues from the Bible, from Jesus, questioning is inherently indirect. So you remember that question, um, tell me about the God you don't believe in. Maybe I don't believe in in him either. It's an example of a very indirect approach because mm-hmm. you're eliciting something from the other person rather than telling them anything. Yeah. But you're creating a moment that you can then speak into something very direct. Like, I can't believe God just sits on his hands and watches us suffer. Well, I don't believe that either. Let me tell you what God did about suffering. So 
So the whole range of indirect just includes any use of imagery is indirect, any use of stories indirect, any use yeah. of questioning is indirect. This is all indirect. So the the reality is our topic, you know, it's retreating is is the difficult kind of fuzzy thing it is, but it actually is part of commonly part of communication. And it's yeah, just it's I'm, okay to notice. I'm thinking you know, more of that as as we go along, and I'm I mean we asked the question before we hit the hit record, but we're trying to define indirect communication as something i'm thinking of it less as a theory and more as a characteristic right of of the way that we interact with one another i mentioned just reading the bible you know cover to cover and just how that affects you and i one way it affects me is that i just remember how provocative so many scriptures are and i think studying indirect has made maybe in some ways made my preaching a little bit more provocative which is not something i create but letting the difficulty of the text be what it is, you know, not the answer to if there are Christians that are complacent or are not, you know, struggling enough or not dealing with urgency with a Christian life, the answer isn't to make it all easier, but the answer is to let the scriptures be what they are, which, which they really, again, they strike you with the fierceness Mm -hmm. of God and then, and then the gift of God's son and those two together. Yeah. There's something indirect inherently because they're not just in, they're doing something to you, right? They're not just Yeah. Yeah, the struggle's part of it. Yeah. And you can't ignore it. Because when you ignore it, you lose something. And the scriptures don't ignore it. They call it what it is and and Christ meets us in the struggle. Yeah. By the means of grace and So I maybe to your question, have I how do I experience this um anytime it's unscripted, one one time I think about one of the most dramatic things I've ever had happen in a class was a, a student in a communication class just kind of threw this hand grenade in the room when she said, oh, I, I have always known I'm ugly, she says. Like, <laughs> and then she just continued whatever point she was making, but oh, I've always known I'm ugly. And and not that it matters, but she was not ugly. She was a perfectly lovely young Christian woman. And I remember that it... You know, I probably fumbled, and I don't want to make this like I had this great thing to say, but I remember it really hit me hard, and I know that I addressed her, just her, for at least a couple of minutes. Mm-hmm. And here's, I'm in a room of 30 kids, right, 30 college students, but I'm just talking to this girl, and I'm, I don't even know what I said, just why you don't get to say that, you know, I, something like, you know, here you are 20 years yeah. old. Be nice to my student. Be nice know? to my student. <laughs> Yeah, here I am, twenty years old. Here you are, twenty years old, and you still don't know who you are. You still don't know, you know. And but the issue is, I'm talk. I'm not talking to anybody else in the room. But I wonder if it was possibly some of the most effective communication I've had toward the other people in the room, just by virtue of that dynamic of overhearing. I'm talking to every one of you about where you derive your identity, and the ones that will destroy you, and the one identity that won't destroy you which is the one you didn't earn or pay for, which is God calls you his child, you know. So an example of, I think that was indirect. It was direct to one yeah. person, but to 29 other people, it's... Yeah, and, and, and it was spontaneous too, yeah. right? It wasn't a premeditated oh, yeah. Every pastor thing. has that story of mm-hmm. doing the hospital call. and. I heard that in a, a sermon last week. Did you? Was, uh, yeah, every pastor has so, that story. Yeah. The person in the next bed. Yeah, he was a, he was a, well, he was a teacher too, and he, he does the Devil's Advocate Day. And there was a, a foreign student who had grown up told there was no God. And 
well, what is the meaning of anything then? It's a high school level student, very the very deep question thinking about these, those things and and has a very profound witnessing moment in front of the entire classroom. It just mm. sticks. That, yeah, it's, okay. it's, yeah, it's we had different stories in mind. That I was I was doing the story of yeah. a pastor doing a devotion in the hospital, mm-hmm. and the next bed over, someone yeah, yeah, the curtain yeah, is just taking and it it's all an, in. it's overhearing exactly. in all of those exactly, but a spontaneous overhearing of of yeah. something. So it's I think in the moment is much more effective when it's it's like right. the it's almost like the indirect approach is is like calling out to you like, hi, right here, here we go. Like this <laughs> that's, is- That's been my experience. Yeah. You, it, you, you know it's happening. Mm-hmm. You're thinking a little bit, part of your mind is thinking, oh, here's, here's a moment. That- and, I, and I wonder how many times that approach has been done without the person realizing or identifying their, their communication as indirect. Right. Where, where it just seems like a natural part of, of how I should be talking right now. Right. My, so it begs the question, when Jesus does this, is how, I don't know how to even say it. I mean, he knows all things, so he knows yeah. what he's doing. But I, it's become one of my favorite scriptures. The, it's just ocean, oceanic in its depth, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. So you know, John's gospel, whatever it is, 15 to 17, right before the cross, that he lets his disciples listen in on that lengthy prayer where the words are simple, but, you know, oh my goodness, you can think about these things all day, all, all your life, really. I mean, Father, let them be one as we are one, I and them, and they and me, just like you are, and me and I am in you. And he just pours out these desires to his Father, and the disciples are just sitting there. He clearly wants them to hear. He's, he's not unaware of all those ears, but, you know, the again, the larger burden of my dissertation is why do it this way? Why do it this way? Why capture the beauty of Christian theology in an upper room where a man is praying? Yeah, know? and and we're just—it's just like that example of the stage and the drama. We're we're not being talked to, and we've already said this a thousand times. But mm-hmm. why is that so compelling? We're asking the same question. Why is that so so compelling? So. Yeah, yeah and it I does think show the, up all the, around us, doesn't it? We the, think about it and look for it. It becomes really tricky for me when you are. I think it's. I think it's mostly in the art where it becomes a very tricky. It's a difficult question to answer. You know, how, what strategy do I use? Because in terms of, well, if we're just going to talk about narrative, mm-hmm. I think that indirect is a crucial component of a good, of a well-told story. And not only because it's being over, overheard by someone or being, you're, you're experiencing a story that hasn't happened to you. You're like given shoes and you're escorted into that world for a moment or two. And I, I think it's, it's very important that indirect is, is a part of that. But that means that it has to be, the story has to be told intentionally then. At least a well-told one. Mm-hmm. I think it... Uh, do you have an example? I'm trying to think of one off the top of my head. I think, well, we, we covered it in 
when we were talking about uh, good art versus bad art, mm-hmm. it's not just throwing information at you. This is bad. This is good. It leaves you asking questions. But how do you tell a story that leads you to be asking questions at the end? So something has to be unresolved. Mm. But you have to have enough information that there's questions to be extracted from it. And I don't want to get too like deep or philosophical about it. We've done that too many times, I think, towards the end of a podcast. But maybe... Maybe we could transition towards uh, like a dessert type thing where we talk about some of our favorite stories and how like indirect communication is a is a quintessential part of that. So maybe I'll I'll go first. There was oh. one that you showed me uh, a couple of years ago called uh, Sunset Limited mm-hmm. or The Sunset Limited, mm-hmm. and it's. Um, I think it was originally a a play, but it got made into a, a movie. I think it's like an hour and a half with um oh who who were the actors it in it? It was Samuel L. Jackson and Tommy Lee Jones. Tommy Lee Jones. So two big names. Yeah, big names. And the writer too is a big name. Cormac uh, McCarthy. McCor- McCormick McCarthy. Do you have that right? Yeah. Cormac McCarthy, yeah. I think he also wrote um No Country for Old Men. Right. Right. Yeah, which Tommy Lee Jones was also in that one. Mm-hmm. Um, and but that, the, in that case, by the way, it's kind of a bit of that Flannery O'Connor thing. We're going to yeah. show you some real grotesque stuff, and then within that context, there's going to be this this communication of grace that's subtle and easy to miss. But yeah, so there's a there's a method there for sure. Anyway, you were talking about Sunset. Limited. Yeah, Sunset Limited is. Um, about a man who encounters someone at the train station and he's about to, I, I guess I can't remember the beginning, but the, the subject is the man's deciding whether or not he should, you know, kill himself by jumping in front of the train or, or did he witness yeah, he, someone jump over no, in front he, of the train he, and he's thinking about this, doing it himself. This uh, college philosophy professor, brilliant guy played by Tommy Lee Jones does try to jump in front of a train and then the other character is a, a poor man, plain spoken, who uh, rescues him and brings him back to his apartment. Oh, that's and so right. The whole okay. thing is in this one room, and they're just and having it's, this yeah, debate. It's an it's hour and a half of yeah. dialogue, very philosophical, very educated. These speak. are right. These are not straw men. When, they're not. When the professor. Yeah. Just it heats up and heats up as he articulates very, his clever, very passionate about his despair at life, and it's just black very despair. articulate at it black too. Black despair, yeah, and and it just heats up to this moment. So the whole time they're debating, how in the world can you believe in the Bible that, you know, the uh, Samuel Jackson character is thumping the whole time. Mm-hmm. So it's a really spirited discussion, and but the way it ends, I think, is what you're yeah, thinking about. The ending is what. Again, what gets me, uh, because I believe the Tommy Lee Jones, the professor character, uh, leaves eventually, and the Christian man is sat is sitting there on like the floor of his apartment by the couch or something, and he's just asking, like, I think he's kind of praying. He's like, "Did I make it? Like, did I make a difference? Did I like? Did I help this man? Did I? Did right. Did he hear what anything that I said?" 
it's, and it just, he's asking the questions, you know, and, yeah, and there's no out, resolution. On the way out the door, the, the it's just gone, come to a fever pitch of the bleakness of the worldview that the, you know, the professor has. And you're right, it ends with the other character just crying out to Jesus, sort of, did I do okay? And mm-hmm. why don't you, kind of like, why don't you help me yeah. make this? Why did you, why, is there <laughs> something about like, why do you give him the words and not me? Something, yeah. Yeah, there is something like that that it's, got me too. And it's so raw and honest, and it doesn't sort of make a decision for the listener. Mm-hmm. We're going we're gonna to make this one character ultimately look stupid, and we're going to make this other character ultimately win the argument. It's just going to leave you in. This is the life and death clash of the worldview, one that is life and one that is death. And, mm-hmm. and it, I don't want to say the word decision because that would be you know, going off the rails, yeah, but it's sort of like it saying to the listener, the so where are you now? Listener, where where are you? And and the, the the layers of questions are deep and profound. How would you have said this? How would you? Have, yeah, yeah. It, so it leaves you in a space where you're contemplating. Now it the, doesn't leave you alone. That yeah. movie does not leave you alone. Yeah, it maybe. sticks with you it after it does. persists. That, and, and maybe that love. maybe that's something that's oftentimes. I mean, I don't claim to be a critic at all, but. I, that's usually my litmus test for whether I really enjoyed a movie or not, or a book or not, or a piece of art or not, is that it persists. Oh, it is so, it, it is so very compelling me. as far as you are deeply involved in this argument. Mm-hmm. The whole movie, the Samuel L. Jackson is just trying to delay the other man from leaving. So one thing I would say about this movie is that I don't think that this would be an effective use of indirect for everyone. I think that a lot, quite frankly, I think a lot of people would be bored by it, hmm. which is which is maybe the reason good for indirect. Maybe, trying to yeah, exactly. So that. they, but they'd hear like just philosophical discussion and a guy trying to convince the other guy and maybe you're rooting for one or the other, but it goes on for a while. And, and then I'm not trying to be a critic of the movie, no, but no. I, I, I enjoyed it very thoroughly. But it's similar things like like that, maybe more subtle, maybe not philosophical discussion, but other narratives that have similar themes to it could are very likely effective in the same way. Right. I, I, I'm agreeing with you. I, I yeah. think that's the whole so thing. So maybe, maybe this is like a 20% movie. Yeah, for and the that's the thing of saw. He yeah. saw a, a kind of person that just skates on the surface of life. And mm-hmm. and the very person who, who could find that movie boring, when this is the ultimate issues <laughs> that, yeah. are, that play between and, two and very well-acted characters. Yeah, and you mentioned there is another one that's maybe similar, as there is a house episode where the... See, this would be more, more of an example of very limited objectives in, in art because the Sunset Limited... I mean, the the message of the cross is absolutely there. Mm-hmm. And that's what I love about that. It's yeah. not like... It's not hidden and right. shuffled under the, the floorboards. Right. In an indirect class uh, I took in uh, at my university in Virginia, we actually watched an episode of House. And it was, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, it's the one episode where House was, the character of House was not dismissive of faith. He's just, you know, the cold rationalist most of the time. But it was a story of a priest who had lost his faith. And and so the priest character is raising these questions. And, and the fact that 
House, the character of House, could not answer them or dismiss them out of hand. And it was a really unique choice the writers made. I don't know what their intentions were, but we had a long discussion about, again, to the conversation that it creates. And uh, so they're, again, a very limited objective of if you're skating through life and you think this question isn't the question of all questions, it's who God is and how we relate to him, then you really should think again. It's kind of all it's trying to say. That's as far as it's trying to go, mm-hmm. you know, as as far as I read it. And, and it so persists. even that maybe has a certain value. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I guess that's my little bite of dark chocolate for dessert. Oh, that was delicious. Yeah. Very tasty. I think you had a, you had one that you had in mind as well. Yeah. You know, a, a rougher movie. So you're always careful about how you recommend things, but a very high quality movie called three billboards in outside Ebbing, Missouri, outside Ebbing, I believe. Missouri. Yeah. yeah. I think I probably only react to that movie because it has something going on that I think is very indirect, but sort of clever. I mean, a, a, a character early in the movie is reading Flannery O'Connor. If you watch carefully, you can yeah. see he's reading Flannery O'Connor. I think uh, A Good Man is Hard to Find, just one of her most grotesque stories. And, and, you know, she wrote about this not being not being put off by all the blood and dead bodies of her stories and missing the point. Mm-hmm. Again, she's making evil recognizable. And So anyway, just the gist of the, the thing is that in the midst of a really awful story of awful characters <laughs> and crude characters and all of that, there's just this single moment of of grace. And it's a, a man who was thrown out a window, um, finding himself in the hospital room with the man who who abused him to that degree. And he's just offering the guy orange juice because he was on a cast and couldn't serve himself. It's just this little, little moment of grace that um, the whole plot, in my viewing, kind of turned on that. The transformation of that other character yeah. turned on that moment. That was so, a big character arc yeah. for So, again, very modest in terms of what we're trying to do with a, a message. No one's converted by that or anything close. It's just... Is we're just saying what kind of art we like is yeah, and it's always the kind that at least for me the one that gives you layers to unpack, and it persists with you. Mm-hmm. I, I say that word too much now these last ten minutes, <laughs> but it, it sticks with you and it it has a life longer than when you're experiencing it. Sure, maybe a way to say that is that, or to get at the point maybe is that. I think good art and good literature sometimes carries within it a, a more robust understanding of the human condition than we even want to have. It just shows you the ugliness and the rawness of it. And the least we can say is it that's where Christianity begins to speak. When you've seen that, it begins to speak. And before you've seen that, just, uh, you know, the degradation of our condition as a race. Until you've seen that, what's the point? Yeah. It's having seen that, then there's a little awakening of there is a love. And even if a given example doesn't point you to it directly, you know, I think maybe it's just saying this is the usefulness of you and I talking to people about what's your favorite movie and why. Yeah. That that can be a pretty interesting conversation. Yeah. Um, it gives you plenty of good segues to right. talk about. Right. At least, uh, to general, like to general, or extrapolate it into your own life, mm-hmm. 
and then that gives you plenty of avenues to, you know, mm-hmm. lead people back to Christ, yeah. which is the whole point. evidently the point uh, or the point of my indirect usage, <laughs> at least purposefully. So, so again, and I, I, yeah. I'm also, yeah, again, I'm hesitant to be purposeful or I'm, I shouldn't say hesitant. I'm very uh, like, I'm all for it, but I also don't want to not be careful right. in it. I want to make sure that it's being, being done in a, in an appropriate manner. And that kind of comes full circle is the, the idea of if, if all this were to do for a listener was to cause me to pay attention to the scriptures and the way it comes to us and, not taking, for example, a parable of Jesus and making the whole point, let's just excavate the meaning of that and then just throw the story away as if there isn't some genius and some reason in the spirits, the economy, to have it come in just, just the form that it does. And so we're back to, I think, what is a, a safe question we can all agree is interesting is, do scriptures come to us in story and image and, and in... Theologies, theologies and the dialogue of Ruth and Boaz and it just yeah. comes in these marvelous marvelous ways and we're just kind of just saying, saying notice that and let's let's think about yeah what's what's being when it gives shown you us. when it gives you pause and allows you to ponder take that time mm-hmm. now I did as far as intentional indirect I just one one example I have of that would be um I'm a quiet person, right? I'm introverted, and mm-hmm. and I kind of embrace that. <laughs> me too. Yeah, me too. They can't measure. They can't measure me. So, <laughs> and having read having read some good stuff about um, uh, a cultural message that you haven't was for a long a long time not heard was just the value of that, the art of that, or the gift of being introverted, mm-hmm. the special contribution that introverts can have, the way we access our gifts is just different. And there hasn't been a lot of affirming that in our culture until maybe the last, you know, 10 years or so. So having read some powerful stuff about that, how do I tell a child of mine, you know, that I wouldn't change who she is, but that that's just something I really love and value, their quietness and all that that means. And so one time just explicitly I asked myself, how do I tell her? And I just... It's, I, I like the example of the limitation of directness. If I just sit her down, knees touching, sweetheart, I want to tell you something, you know, she would be like, what's wrong with me that dad is talking to me this way, you know? That's one time where I explicitly made a decision to, I mean, it was kind of spontaneous, but in the moment, I just, I'm going to let her over here. And we were just in a restaurant, and I just talked to my bride and just talked about what I was reading and how much it meant to me to, to think these new thoughts about that that uh, God-given temperament. And you just see from the corner of my eye this this beautiful, thoughtful, brilliant, intelligent girl taking this in, right, in this, in this overhearing space that we kind of created. And it was just really cool, I, and I'm pretty sure it meant something. And she very indirectly, ironically, asked me for the book later on. Just, oh, by the way, that book you were talking about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? And I remember my, my uh hope this isn't sharing too much. I don't know if my kids are listening. We'll do it after the wedding. Right? <laughs> okay. that... My my extroverted child, which I love that too. That's just a marvelous, marvelous uh, trait. But uh, we were talking about this and she goes, well, Dad, sometimes I'm in school and I'm not talking. 
you know? <laughs> and, and what I said to her, just based on what I'd read about our cultural kind of biases, I just kind of said, yeah, but I bet you're not ashamed, you know? Just out of the corner of my eye, I'm trying to keep it indirect. Just mm-hmm. in the corner of my eye, I just see this other child, you know? It's, you know, or it's a message I don't know if she'd ever heard before, that this is really, this is really precious, but... But, and again, I wouldn't change a thing about this aspect of you. But just an example of deliberately saying, yeah. I want this to be overheard. And, and knowing to be beforehand that yep, there's a choice that I'm going to say this and it be overheard. Yeah. So cool. an example of that. Yeah. So there is one other, right before we wrap it up, I know we already had dessert, but there was still something that I think... Uh, we were talking about beforehand and what was with, I think it was related to edu education mm. with, um, the prodigal daughter. Prodigal daughter. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So there was, um, what did you call ed- Edutainment? Was that what it was called? I think, well, and this is more like, I think slightly tangential, but I still think it's, it's probably important. called that. It's probably called that. I think. There's sort of a growing subcategory discipline called it um, communication uh, or entertainment education. Yeah. Entertainment education. And so one of my gurus in my program out at out in Virginia, or was a guru of this idea. Literally, literally wrote the book on on this. And his research it goes to the question of how entertainment affects um, affects truth and values and so on. And his research discovered a three three different discrete ways that entertainment affects people. And and sort of from lowest to highest, lowest was, I believe it was, narrative transportation. So it's the way, and you can see this in the scripture too, I think, mm-hmm. the way the story takes you someplace. Like the story that takes us to a mountain in yeah. Saudi Arabia or whatever. You Puts know. us at the feet of Simon's table or... Right, or the burning bush I'm referring yeah, to. Yeah, or the, the cross. Right. So there's 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 an atmosphere to that place, such as the holiness and the grace of God is sort of this atmosphere, let's say. It's so as far as how to, what is the effect of media or stories or entertainment, one was narrative transportation. Um, abductive reasoning, I suppose, it, the the art steals you away, right? And then the next layer up was called parasocial relationship, which is when people in media seem real to you. You don't actually have a relationship with them, but you think you do. It feels like you do because they're that, that important to you. Like the day lady died, died in the car accident. It was the worst day of my life, someone says, because that's how how much she seems like somebody actually in this person's life, like Fred Rogers, you know, again, mm-hmm. audaciously looking into the television camera telling children they're special to him. Mm-hmm. He's, he's, he's really a couple of decades ahead of his time and trying to exploit that, that uh, someone in media feels real to you. And then the highest of all was identification, which was wanting to be like someone who is brought to you by entertainment media. And so I, my, my advisors, they were, very curious people, and there's this apparently one of the largest Elvis conventions in the world is out in Virginia Beach, and so they just got curious, like, what in the world is that all about? You know, yeah. they discovered it was about the father figure. For the most people, it was something like that, but 
they showed us a video of some of their qualitative research, some of their interviews, and one video, quite unforgettable, was a man going under under the knife for like his 20th surgery to look like Elvis. And uh, oh my, my advisor, as an interviewer, asked him, so what goes through your mind at this moment? And the man said, uh, at this moment, I always ask myself, do I love him enough? That is, do I love Elvis enough to be like him? no matter what it costs me. And so it's just that this guy was trying to tease out what is the influence here, and he thought that was number one, was someone brought to us in media that we just want to be... Identification. Know, yeah, so that's the question he's asking, is why Why is entertainment right now changing our culture so yeah. dramatically in such a short time? And uh, those scholars were willing to kind of bring this question into the church in some ways I'm really not I'm not personally willing to change the way the church is worshipped for example for about 2,000 years so I, yeah. I'm more careful about how yeah. that applies to our communication as a church but it sure is intriguing it's, you know? yeah it's intriguing to me especially for um, like studying narrative like how Absolutely. how is it how is it effective so, it, I, so like I see that in right. Actually, like in superhero movies, and I'm not that big of a fan, but I like my brother, I think is, you know, will read into it before the movie happens and, you know, knows all the characters and all the backstories. And I'm just in there for like a, you know, I hope this is entertaining, like two and a half hours or three hours if it's the last one, least one. But mm-hmm. um, there, I don't know, there was something about uh, those characters that a lot of people identified with, I think. So that was interesting to explore. And I think that's the that's another one of the ways in which narrative is very um uh has purpose in in society is that it gives you an avenue to identify with people like that. And so I back to the church's communication sort of inferences we can draw that I think are safe is that we all know our culture is becoming less literate in terms of this stories of scripture that to us are just I mean they're the means of grace this is the word of God this is what the spirit uses to to work on people we can only come to appreciate more the artistry and beauty of it all and it would be about learning to be more confident in using them these yeah. unknown stories people that don't know prodigal son my goodness best story ever told and and they don't know it yeah, and it's so radical, and it's you know, so it's it's uh, the takeaway is r- running back to the scripture and letting them be what they are in the full breadth of imagery and yeah, and uh, narrative and and also the systematic stuff too. Yeah, and maybe it even gets to a point where, like, any telling is a retelling mm-hmm. because it's been so what's the good word was inoculated to the, what the truth actually was about mm-hmm. it. So that when you do tell it in its full form, you can almost experience it again like that, especially for, well, for both people who do know the story and people who thought they knew the story mm-hmm. beforehand too. It could be very, very powerful. Right. So do you know who told this story, by the way? So prodigal son. And then do you know who told that story? Um, I'm suggesting that's what you could ask somebody. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah tell the story first. And gotcha. The, that this is the, the, yeah. true, the true radical mm-hmm. 
Um, yeah, that's always an interesting characteristic of stories when they have, like the Grand Budapest Hotel does that, where it's like a story within a story within a story, or uh, the Princess Bride, where the whole thing is really a grandpa reading a bedtime story to the the child that's ill or sick, things like that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Are you full? I'm. Maybe? I'm. Yeah. Very full. Stuffed. I'm actually. ready. Where's the check? <laughs> check, Give please. So, yeah, I think that just about wraps up our discussion, conversation on indirect communication. And I'm sure it'll come up plenty of other times in our future conversations as well. Is there anything else you wanted to add before we wrap it up? No, it's been fun talking to you, John. Yeah, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for making the trip to the two or or three studios up on the hill here in New York. Back to the 507. (laughs) All right. Thank you very much for listening. We'll catch you you next time.